This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Stephen Schwartz, author of the short story collection, Little Raw Souls, which won the Colorado Literary Fiction Award in 2014. He is also the author of two other story collections and two novels. His fiction has received multiple awards. We began our interview talking about the similarities between psychology and writing. Schwartz majored in psychology as an undergraduate. Well, it was Chekhov who said, if you want to be a writer, study psychology. And uh, there's always been a a, a close relationship uh, between uh, psychology or even if you want to say therapy and and writing. Um, You know, they, they involve narrative, really. And I mean, when you go... When you go in to see a therapist, what you're doing is telling your story. And you're there to have that story affirmed in some way and for a therapist to help you understand it and to give you insight into that story. Um, and when you're, you're a writer, essentially you're doing the same thing. You're, you're creating these characters and you're um, trying to find out you know, what their motivation is and who they are uh, at, at heart and at the bottom. Um, and, you know, th- if you're in therapy, there's, there's a kind of mystery to why you've been doing certain things all your life. Why these patterns? Why, why do you behave this way? Why are you having trouble or, or in, in your relationship? Uh, why can't you keep a job or whatever it is? It's the same kind of inquiry and investigation that goes on with characters. When you're starting to write, um, you don't know these characters. You're trying to find out their narrative. You're trying to find out their story, who they are, and why they behave that way. Um, you know, as a writer, you you write to figure out what you know. Um, you don't know in advance about the characters. Um, and I, I think that, you know, for me, you know, it wasn't that hard to make that transition from just being interested in, in why people behave the way they do. I mean, when I was five years old and I was asking those questions like, how does it make you feel? What I was always really looking for was the narrative underneath. I was always looking for the subtext. And that's what is in any good piece of writing. It's, it's not just a surface anecdote. It's what is the narrative underneath it? What's the meaning? What's that subtext that is going on? And that's what I've always been interested in with people. If they're telling me something, I'm trying to figure out what's underneath that they're telling me, what's implied, what's the resonance that where all this is coming from. And I think most writers live like that. They think like that. They're, 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 there's a kind of dual perception going on all the time of uh, hearing the information and trying to decipher what the information means, what's its code, just like a therapist would do when they're listening to you in an office. So when you go, when you talk about subtext in writing, that's something that is below the surface. But I think as a writer, you also don't want it to be overt. So how do you craft subtext? You know, when you talk about writing, sometimes you say, well, the dialogue, they're having this conversation, but there's something else underneath or the motivation of a character. There's something else underneath. It's not supposed to be this obvious thing. How do you get that in there? Well, let's start this way. You know, you have to 
impose a kind of blindness on yourself as a writer. You can't be thinking about the meaning of your story as you're writing it. Um, and you have to be actually following the events or um, as, as if you're seeing them for the first time. Um, you know, I, I don't know what my stories mean when I'm writing them. I only know that after I've thought about them, and again, you know, whatever they mean, it's only just one interpretation. It's my interpretation. But um, while I'm writing it, I'm, I'm just thinking in terms of images. I'm thinking in terms of events. I'm thinking in terms of what the characters look like. Um, I'm, th and I'm seeing it in real time, real imaginary time in a, in a certain way. So... Uh, you know, although I'm trying to get the stories to go somewhere in a sort of meaningful way, um, I, the, the subtext is really in the back of my mind. And I'm much more working with what happens next. And, and, and I guess you might say it's so much more of an intuitive process. Uh, I, it's dangerous to get your critical faculty in there and start analyzing before the gestation period of the, of the work is over. And, uh, you know, so much of writing fiction is about authority with ambiguity. That is, you're trying to find meaning, but the meaning can't be reductive. And, but you have to write of a certain authority. It has to be, it can't just be random. And I think when I'm uh, doing a story and trying to create these characters, um, I'm just thinking, what do they do next? What do they think? What do they feel? Uh, what do they hope for? But I can't get too far away from that. I can't get too much into a kind of rarefied territory and start analyzing the story because then it goes dead. You're listening to First Draft, produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Stephen Schwartz, author of the short story collection, Little Raw Souls. So that idea of subtext in your short story collection, Little Raw Souls, I want to talk a little bit about the title because to me, the title is the subtext of all the stories. Yeah. Um, and it's it's so moving because we're basically all, when you look at humans, we're all moving around the world as Little Raw Souls. So can you talk about how you came up with the title and what it means? Yeah. Um, and the title... Um, just let me get something here. Um, the title comes from uh, a, a great poem, a great long poem by Ann Carson called The Glass Essay. Um, and it's, uh, I have it in an ep uh, epigraph here, a space where the little raw soul slips through. It goes skimming the deep keel like a storm petal. Out of sight, the little raw soul was caught by no one. Um, and... I had this title very late in the collection. Uh, I was using some a working title from one of the stories that was actually in there. Uh, I think it was Bless Everybody. Um, and then I was just reading this poem. I had read it before, too, and I came across this phrase, and I thought, this is it. And, and, and the way it's, the context in the actual poem has nothing to do with the way I'm using it. But um, I was so happy because it, it kind of unified the collection for me. And when you're doing a collection of stories, they're so disparate in, some, uh, in many ways. Like, what does this story have to do with that story? So if you can find sort of a, a, a unifying principle, like through the title, 
then it can be really effective. But um, they are all literal souls. They're all vulnerable in, in some ways. They're all struggling. And often they're struggling with what happened to them in the past and still trying to overcome it at some point late in their lives um, and trying to uh, surmount their their difficulties. And, I, you know, I didn't necessarily mean it, in a, certainly in a religious sense, but I, I meant it in, in, in the sense of what is that essence that in, in people, whether you want to call it a soul or the self or whatever it is, but you know what, you know what is it that that filament that you know that always comes up in situations that people are trying to uh, deal with in terms of their troubles and and working out their problems, and um, you know all all of these all of these characters have some kind of issue that. Um, you know, gets them into that raw place. That's part of the title. And um, I think that's what literature should do at its best. I mean, it, it should talk about these private moments in people's lives, these raw moments that you know, people don't talk about, except maybe in therapy or maybe to their spouse or, or you know, to their very best friend. But that really rule people's lives and have so much influence on it. So there are 11 stories in Little Raw Souls, and they are unified by this idea that we are vulnerable as human beings. But in subject, they are diverse. They are about an older man in love with a younger woman, a boy whose parents are communists. Uh, They're about a boy who wants to enter the Marines and his dying mother doesn't want him to. So they're all very different. Um, What is your process, if you even have one, when you begin a story. I'm just wondering a little bit about your sensibility of the world, because I do see this unifying factor of these people that are struggling maybe with their identity or something in the past, but yet they all are come out so different in personality and plotline. The best way I can answer that is something I've always told my students, which is you, you have to write about your obsessions. There's no way you can avoid them. Uh, avoid them as you want, but they'll come after you and they'll show up in, in your writing. Um, and so even though these stories are all very different, um, they still come out of my own obsessions, uh, you know, uh, whatever they are. And, and yet the strange thing is that I don't think about that first. I don't think, well, I'm going to write about loneliness. I'm going to write about success and failure. I think uh, there's an incident that happens or something that uh, triggers the story. And then the the stories are are shaped by that. One of the stories in the collection is The Stranger. A, A colleague had told me about a friend of his, a woman who had fallen asleep in an airport and been, um, uh, kissed by a man in a, in a nice suit and uh, he had taken her wallet to go and buy something in a souvenir or a gift shop there at the airport. This was while she was sleeping. While she was sleeping. Yes, I should add that. And uh, when she woke up, um, it turned out that this person wasn't her husband or anybody like this, but it was a thief. And what struck me about that was the detail of uh, this person kissing her and um, looking for that one small little detail that stands out and that won't let your mind go. Um, and um, 
you know, and, and you kind of, as a writer, you carry that around. You carry that moment around or that germ or that, that seed around uh, for a long time until it's ready to kind of gestate in a certain way. Um, and then eventually there's a part where it becomes your own um, and that the anecdote that might have started it, which has nothing to do with you, is somehow uh, becomes influenced by all your own, again, your own obsessions. Well, in that story, that's a scene that begins the story. And, and the main character, Elaine, is in the airport. She gets kissed. Uh, she wakes up. Her wallet isn't there. And a stranger next to her said, oh, your husband just took off uh, to the store or something. And her backstory is she's coming home from a funeral. Her dad just died. She's been going through his stuff. Her mom had died years earlier. And then she's heading back to her husband and child. And she ends up going to the bar and meeting a guy who kind of propositions her to go home with him that evening because their flights are delayed. Right. And so she, here's this woman in pain, and then this really weird, mysterious thing happened to her. So can you just talk about the plot? The original story of what happened, the real story was that um, this woman who had had wallet stolen and been kissed, there was, there was a pass, another passenger who she didn't know sitting next to her in the waiting area. And she had seen the whole thing, and she had thought it was her husband, uh, this woman's husband, kissing her. Um, and the real story was that uh, the woman who had had her wallet stolen got on the plane, and uh, and the thief got on the plane at the same time, and she was alerted to it by this woman. Um, and uh, you know what? What eventually happened was that um, after the plane landed. They took this thief aside, and, but they didn't find any evidence of having steal, stolen the wallet. But two weeks later, the woman got a call that her wallet had been wedged between the seats on the plane. So I was fascinated by the idea that she was, not only had she been kissed while she had been sleeping and a thief had stolen her wallet, a well-dressed man in a gray suit, but that he'd gotten on the plane with her and she had to go through her whole plane ride with this man, um, knowing that he was the thief and that she couldn't do anything about it. And I was hung up on that, writing the story exactly that same way. But it wasn't until I abandoned that whole idea of the plane trip and decided that, wait, she doesn't even get on the plane. She just goes into the bar and she meets this character, this sort of mysterious character named Herman Grace. And they have this kind of moment together where it's very revealing. Her father has died and she's very vulnerable. And he has just come from an intervention with his children as an alcoholic, which has failed. And he's feeling just lost in the world. And somehow they get to this romantic position. It wasn't until I'd gone deeper into the story and found that that's what the story was really about. That was the meaning of it. it you know, so many times the wrong direction that writers take is they start piling on plot details. And, and they forget that it's just in the characters. You have to go back to drawing everything out of the internal situation, the internal conflict. You have to find that nexus, keep finding that nexus between conflict, voice, and action, and uh, character. And, and if you find that nexus, you're, you're, you keep on track. But I had lost the characters in, in, in trying to write the original story, and the original story isn't the real story. You know? The real story has to have a strong element of coming to life through the imagination. That's what creates the immediacy of it. And so are you saying sort of the, these two vulnerable people meeting in the airport it was the point in the end for you? Well, what's the point is that 
they find a moment of intimacy together that I was really after. You know, for Elaine, the main character, she's lost her father. And when you lose somebody, you're not really yourself. You're somebody else. And um, I felt that way when my, uh, you know, my mother had died first and then my father died. And I, when both parents had died, I really felt like I was lost. And um, I was acting strange. I was crying in inappropriate times. I, you know, I was getting into arguments. I, I didn't know who I was anymore. And essentially, that's what happens to Elaine. Um, she, she's really in, lost in time there. And she finds this person who is lost too, uh, these two strangers, and they, they, they meet and there's some kind of communion between them that uh, would almost never happen with uh, two other people. So one of the things that to me is one of your strengths are the endings. You know, a lot of your stories and a lot of stories in general might have two things going on or three things going on. And somehow you find a way to wrap two things that might not be related and relate them. And an example for me would be your story, I think it's called Absolute Zero, which is about a young boy who is wants to go to the Marines, right? and his mother is dying and doesn't want him to go to the Marines. So he has this sort of narrative part that's going on where he's worried about his mother and having some kind of dispute with her about joining the Marines. And then he's taken to this Marine recruiter and he goes to the Marine recruiter's house to have dinner with him and also kind of has a crush on his daughter. And the daughter is a troublesome child. And so while he's really mourning the eventual and inevitable loss of his mother and joining the Marines, the last scene, he goes to the recruiter's house and his troubled daughter has lit the house on fire and the whole thing is blown up. And when he goes to see the house on fire at that moment, he's in the house, he's in that part of the world. And as soon as he sees the flames, he pretty much knows his mother has just died. And so you're combining these two things. I just want to talk about endings, this one in particular, if you want, but what you're going for. Yeah. Endings are the hardest thing to do. Um, And, you often struggle with it because there are some antecedents, some roots somewhere of the story that are further back that aren't working. And that's what I always tell my students is you have to go back and look what's preventing you from actually getting to the right ending. Endings should be unpredictable until the end, and then they should feel inevitable. In other words, you shouldn't see them coming, but then when it happens, you should feel like there's no other possible ending for, for, for what occurs. For me... In that case, the ending is taking a risk because um, he knows his mother has died without, without being there. And um, I, I think that, you know, I knew that there had to be some kind of way out of the situation for him, all the pressure he was under, and there had to be some sort of transcendent moment that felt like he was moving on in some way. And, and you know, essentially what I'm talking about is that you have to find that way to reach closure. And, and it's very, it can be very difficult if uh, you know, you're just trying to impose something on there that, that doesn't belong. And often the ending, as in that story, comes from some place that we've forgotten about earlier. Um, you know, we've forgotten a little bit 
because we're concentrating on the action. We've forgotten his mother has cancer and that he's been dealing with that situation. So we loop around sometimes. You're listening to First Draft, produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Stephen Schwartz, author of the short story collection, Little Raw Souls. I want to talk about the story Natural Causes. That is a story where there's a man, Francis, who his wife dies in a car accident. She basically had just said she wanted a divorce, then she's dead. And he is a retired geology teacher and he takes up with another uh, teacher at the school who at the university who's much younger over 20 years younger and they have this wonderful affair but he decides one day basically that he can't do it I don't know if it's decorum or a fear of saying he loves someone and they break up for a little while and then he sort of realizes the error of his ways and will spend the rest of his life trying to get her back can you talk a little bit about this story well, again, the precipitating incident for that was actually a, a colleague of mine, an older colleague. He and his wife were driving through Nebraska, and um, their car did get hit by an older woman driving it, just like it happens in this story here. Um, and he had um, spent, his wife died, and he spent a night in, in a hospital, and he washing out his bloody clothes in the sink and having to pick glass out from his face. But that's as much as I used. Um, he and his wife actually had a very loving relationship. Um, but I, again, I needed something in reality to stand on. And I was just so struck by that. They'd been married for so many years, and then this accident comes along. But I, I love the, ma- the character in there. It's one of my favorite characters, Penny. She's younger than, than, than the narrator and the viewpoint character. And she's bringing life to him as he's never known it. And his marriage has been stale and habitual, and he's gotten set in his ways. And he's completely overwhelmed by Penny and all of her interest and excitement. And she wants him to go to do various things and exercise. And uh, and it's it's too much. And as I've gotten older, I've become aware of, boy, how easily it is to be stuck and to, um, you, know, you know, do the same things every day and how, how hard it is to go out of your comfort zone. And I, I just wondered about my colleague Dick, who was um, the real person, and like what it would be like to lose your, uh, your spouse at that advanced age and to meet somebody who wants to essentially turn your life over and how exciting that would be and how fearful it would be at the same time. I think in terms of writing, you're always working with that contradiction, the tension between what people want to do and what they're afraid to do. And so much of the story comes out of that. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes, I'm going to read um, just the opening paragraph of a wonderful novel called Mrs. Bridge by Evan Connell. And here it is. Her first name was India. She was never able to get used to it. It seemed to her that her parents must have been thinking of someone else when they named her, or were they hoping for another sort of daughter. As a child, she was often on the point of inquiring, but time passed, and she never did. I, I love this book. It's divided into 117 vignettes. And I remember Jane Smiley talking about the difference between novels of abundance and novels of perfection. And novels of abundance 
are the big novels that often win the prizes, like Moby Dick or maybe Beloved or something like that. And novels of perfection are like The Great Gatsby, where every line is seems like it belongs. There are no long errors in it. And this is what this is, like a perfect novel. For me, it also combines like the best of short story writing with the best of, of, a, of a novel. And this character, Mrs. Bridge, um, she's, it takes place in the 1930s, an upper middle class home in Kansas City. Um, she's very repressed. Um, she wants to break out of her life, but she can't. And, um, and she wouldn't know how to do it anyway. And you know much more about this character while you're reading it. You know what her problems are. Than she, she know more than she does. But it doesn't stop you as a reader from having so much sympathy for her. And it's just a, it's just a wonderful portrait. And then also as a writer, one of the reasons I like it is, just I'll read this first line again. Her first name was India. She was never able to get used to it. If you change that to first person and read, my first name was India, I was never able to get used to it. Can you hear the difference in that? It's an entirely different perspective. Um, and all the distance that's there that allows Evan Canella write this wonderful portrait of this woman, Mrs. Bridge, is gone as soon as it becomes a first person narrator. So I always point that out to my students that and one of the hardest things to figure out is what point of view you're gonna write something in. And once you have it, you have the story. Can you read something you wrote that was maybe tricky to write or something you're happy with or something that changed a lot from the first draft? Yeah, I'm going to read um, just uh, an opening paragraph from a story called Seeing Miles. David stared at Mimi's picture taken at his bar mitzvah 25 years ago. She was his cousin, a second cousin, and she and her family had come out to Milwaukee from Brooklyn for the occasion. He remembered being smitten at the ceremony. She had dark, silky hair and large brown eyes flecked with gold. Slender and tall, her face had an oval shape like a prized portrait, and her hair was tucked behind her small, well-articulated ears, carved as if from soap. Her throat had a long white curve, and she sat very still in the second row of the synagogue as he read from the Torah and led the congregation in blessings. At the end of giving his bar mitzvah speech, he thanked his parents for being so supportive, and then thanked all his relatives and friends for coming. He looked at Mimi and said, and thank you. It was a bizarre and spontaneous moment for him in the life so far of calm, reasoned, and practiced application. Nevertheless, she just continued to stare unwaveringly at him on the bima, but he was a goner. It was his first experience of painful desire, a fervor that threatened to swallow his flesh. Nor did it hurt that he was just entering puberty and Mimi, 15, was obviously there already. And the reason I, I chose that is, um, well, what happens actually in the story is that he, it is his, his first you know, knowledge or moment of being smitten and being in love. And he doesn't see his cousin, uh, only sees her once after that, very briefly. And he, many years later, he has become a therapist, a psychologist, and uh, Mimi is a social worker, and um, they're meeting at a convention. Um, and it turns out that um, Mimi is no longer Mimi. She's now Miles, and she's had a sex change. So the story is, um, is, is about that. It's about his feelings for her now as a man. And um, I was... Uh, <laughs> You know, this actually happened, um, I mean, I had a cousin who 
it was my brother's bar mitzvah, but I saw her there, and uh, I was just fell in love with her. I was much younger, actually, about 10 years old. And then years later, um, I heard that, uh, you know, she had had a sex change. And it, because I hadn't seen her in all that time, it really affected me in, in some ways because I had carried this image of her for so long. But in terms of the story, um, I always knew I wanted to write about it, but I didn't know how to write about it. And it, again, one of the things that happened was that this story took me about a long time, about five years to write. And I kept showing it to my wife. And finally, she got to the point where she said, please don't show this to me again until you really make something of it. So I put it away. And it was in the mechanical room. And one day I was going down there and looking for some old papers. And I started to read the beginning of, of a story that I thought a student had written. And actually, I said, well, this is pretty good. And it was my story that I had never finished. And I took it out. And I immediately finished it. And I found the right way to get through it. Uh, it had really gone off the tracks and it just gone into some really, you know, inappropriate areas and everything like that. And it, you know, it taught me something. It taught me that stories all have their own time. You can't rush them just because they're short stories doesn't mean that they, they, they get done any faster than you might do a novel. Where do you write? Well, I write anywhere, really. Um, I've, you know, I like to write out of the house because it's too distracting. So I go to coffee shops um, and I'll rotate those. Um, uh, you know, I do have an office and sometimes I'll write there. It depends on what stage I'm writing. If I'm going really strong on a novel, um, I, I can write anywhere and I can write any time. But in the beginning, I have to really find the right place to write where I feel comfortable because it's so hard to break through into a new work. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Uh, I could use some tips on that. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm in Colorado, so I take a lot of walks. Uh, I ride my bike sometimes. Uh, I talk to my children. Uh, I go out to breakfast. Uh, sometimes I go skiing. Um, but do you really ever get away from writing? Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? This is, um, my wife is a writer too, and I show it to her and pretty much exclusively work with her until maybe an editor reads it. And she is very uh, hard on me. I mean, we made this agreement when we got, we've been married for 30 years. We made this agreement. We were going to be honest. And that doesn't always work with friends who are trying not to hurt your feelings or they want to encourage you. But um, I remember when I was writing my second novel and uh, I uh, had, you know, shown it to her and she had read the first 40 pages she was saying oh this is really great and I was like oh yeah of course my second novel I know what I'm doing and then she started avoiding me in the house and really avoiding me I knew something was wrong and uh she just was said look uh you've taken a wrong turn here and it's a really wrong turn and then we got into a huge argument and I was crying and she was crying but you know, she was right. You know, I had to discard 200 pages and start from that page 40 again. How have you dealt with rejection? Uh, you know, I think it's a, one writer has said, you're either in it for the process or the rewards. And that's, that's hard to keep in mind, really. Um, yeah, it's, it's such an act of will to keep writing. And um, it, 
it, it is so fraught with, with rejection. Um, I, I think, again, my wife and I are very supportive of each other, and, and, and that's helped. Um, you know, there's, there's ways that you, you just have to think about why you're doing this. And what it often comes down to for me is that the, the world is a less rich place if I'm not writing, if I'm not thinking of it as a writer. And I go back to like, well, what else am I going to do if I don't do this? I, it's like I have to do it. And that's what the antidote is to rejection. And, um, you know, you can't hang on to it. I mean, if there are so many instances, if you get to a certain point in your career where um, you've been rejected, but then um, whatever was rejected gets accepted. I, I remember I had a story that went around 30 times and it got picked up by a small magazine, which was just starting out Mid-American Review, and they published it. And um, next thing I know, it was in the O. Henry Prize collection. And I was getting letters from the very same editors who rejected it. So you, you learn some of this stuff. You learn that you're in it for the long haul, but it's not easy. Um, rejection is really, really tough. And every writer has to overcome self-doubt. Um, there's the business of writing, which is actually the writing, and then there's the writing business, which is all about publishing. And you, you have to keep, you have to, you have to have a firewall between those two. And that firewall is always collapsing. And you have to build it up again and get back to the, you know, the business of writing and not the writing business. And what is your favorite word? Bloviating. Bloviating means to expound and be pompously talking. And, you know, hopefully I'm not bloviating now. But, uh, I, you know, first of all, I love B words, uh, bilious, bumptious. Uh, they just had, I, I've always loved them as a child. I think I fell in language through words that began with the consonant B. And th- it's just one of those words I love to say, bloviating. Uh, you, can, you can almost say with an English accent. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me was Stephen Schwartz, author of the short story collection, Little Raw Souls. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.